I'm not a heroic folk singer with a message or a Texas ranger who lives a high life of morality. I'm not even a mall cop. I'm just a schnook. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you for tuning in to Chapter 2 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I'm Sean. Your host as usual. Well, probably as always, because I guess I'm the schnook. I don't know. But before I get any further, there's just something I really need to let out. And I'm going to apologize. This is going to be a downer. Uh, if you want to skip to the next several minutes, I totally understand just something that I have to get out. Just something that um, mentally, emotionally, I have to just, I don't know, just express, I guess. But if you heard the prologue of this podcast, you heard me mention that I'm married, no children, but a beagle. Well, unfortunately, um, that's not the case anymore. We, as of right now, we don't have a beagle, sadly. Thir it was, um, when was it? It was Thursday night, November, let's see, I'm recording this on December 2nd, so one, two, uh, November 29th, uh, my wife and I were taking a class at the Old Town School of Folk Music here in Chicago, as we usually do, we got home a little bit after 10, we opened the door, and just out of nowhere, there's Ruthie right there, our beagle, um, all excited to see us, <laughs> she, she actually ran out the door, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, you're home, and then she ran back into the kitchen, and she couldn't make up her mind whether she wanted affection from me or from Lisa, she kept going back and forth, and I just said, okay, Ruthie, settle down. How about we go outside? Because she was way overdue for her nighttime walk. And so she's like, yeah, let's go outside. So I put her leash on her, and I walked her down to the first floor. We live on the third floor. And she went out of the courtyard, and there was a little eh, little mass of snow, and she walked into it and peed. And I said, all right, do you need to do more? You want to go out to the back? And she seemed to be like, yeah, let's go out to the back. Then she turned around. She's like, no, actually, I want to go back in. I was like, okay, you can do the rest tomorrow, I guess. And uh, she was uh, 13, 14 years old-ish. Um, more about that in a minute. And lately, she'd been a little bit slow kind of going up and down the stairs. Sometimes she'd need a little bit of encouragement or maybe a little nudge in the butt. <laughs> but now she went straight up. without, And she went all the way up to the third floor, which is unusual because the entire time we had Ruthie, which was about 10 years, um, she would stop at the second floor because she was a lazy dog. She was a lazy little beagle. She didn't want to go up all the way to the third floor. In fact, the day we brought her home after we adopted her and we were walking her home, we walk up, we walk up the stairs. And when she get to the second floor, it's like, okay, come on, Ruthie, let's keep going. And she's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but we went all the way up to the third floor. And just as I opened the door, I heard her yelp. And then she collapsed and she was kind of gasping. And she struggled to get in and she just completely collapsed, totally limp. And, uh, um, Lisa and I were just kind of shocked. And, uh, Lisa said, do you think she's gone? I said, I, I really don't know. And I tried to feel for a heartbeat, but I couldn't really tell for sure if I was feeling one or if I wasn't. And she's, she got on the phone with the emergency vet and explained what happened. She said, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if she's, she died or if she's, just unconscious. And they said, well, bring her in. We'll do whatever we can. And we drove her over to the emergency vet and uh, we walked her in. And, you know, I said, I, I really don't think she's, she, I think she's gone. And, and, the, and, uh, 
the tech said, well, you know, we'll see what we can do. She might just be unconscious. We might be able to do CPR or something. And they guided us to the room. And, you know, a few minutes later, they came in and confirmed that, you know, she it was, it was already too late. And they asked if, uh, if we wanted to see Ruthie for a little bit. And my wife said, well, yeah, we, we would, we'd like to. So they brought Ruthie, well, her body for all practical purposes out, out to us. And we just kind of sat there and talked and, you know, it was just, I don't know, my, I was actually bracing myself for this day. Cause I knew that someday I would, we'd have to lose the dog. I mean, it's something we knew from the beginning. It's just nature, you know, uh, we had talked about how, you only get a dog for a little while and then you it's time to say goodbye. And I guess we just weren't expecting it. Uh, Ruthie had always been really healthy. She was always uh, in really good shape. In fact, her vet said on more than one occasion that she found the fountain of youth. Uh, we don't know exactly how old she was. Uh, when we adopted her in 2008, uh, we adopted her from a rescue called Brew Beagle. Re- uh, I think it stands for Beagle Research Education and Welfare because my wife loves beagles. She always had her whole life. And Brew had approximated Ruthie's age at four years old. Uh, They knew nothing about Ruthie. She was collected from a shelter that had uh, just received a whole ton of pets that were lost in floods from, uh, there were some really bad storms in uh, Western Illinois and Iowa, and I think Southern Illinois. And she was, uh, Ruthie was one of the, the dogs that they, uh, gathered from the outcome. And, uh, she wasn't chipped. Um, they weren't able to locate whoever were her people. Uh, I, I don't want to say owners because something that, uh, I learned, uh, being a beagle person <laughs> is that you don't own the beagle. The beagle owns you, but they couldn't locate her people. So, Brew took her out of the shelter and, uh, she was not in good shape. Uh, she was really rugged and, uh, I guess she was, she had a severe flea problem. So the foster from brew nursed her back to health, cleaned her up. And, uh, um, her initial vet appointment after we got her basically confirmed. Yeah, she was in really good shape. She was in good health. Uh, she had arthritis in one of her legs though. And, uh, the vet agreed with the assessment that she was probably four years old but possibly even three, because I guess the way they check a dog's age is wear and tear in the teeth. And I guess the teeth looked like the teeth of possibly a three-year-old beagle. Obviously, they didn't know the dog's name, uh, so they brew gave her the name Ruth Ann, which she answered to right away, and and she also answered to Ruthie, so that's usually what we called her. Uh, We would call her Ruth Ann if we were scolding her for something, (laughs) but it's... God, it's been a really tough three days for, for me personally. I'm really proud of uh, Lisa for how well she's been handling it. She's been handling it better than I have, I think. But I'm trying to find positives in all this, and it's really not that hard, to be honest. Uh, first of all, when Ruthie went, when she left this world, she was a happy little girl. She was excited to see us. Um, second of all, uh, Ruthie and Lisa and I were all together. We were all together at the time that it came. So we were all there for her last moments. That was going to be a big concern for me. I'd always worried that Ruthie would have gone, say, when uh, we were on vacation or when Lisa was away or we were both at work or something. But but no, Ruthie basically waited for us to be together, really. So that helped tremendously, just knowing that. We got a lot of outpouring from friends and family, and it really 
it really meant a lot to us. It really helped. Like as, as we were there in the office with, you know, Ruthie gone and she was and her body was in front of us. Lisa posted a message on Facebook that we lost her and just every little response and every little reaction really made things a lot easier for us. Um, and the people at the emergency vet, I forgot the name of the place, but thankfully we've only had to use them twice. And the second time was this, this moment actually, but they were incredibly nice to us. They were, they treated us really well. Can't say enough good things about them. The next night that uh, Friday night, we went over to the horseshoe casino in Hammond, Indiana, because Brian Wilson was doing a concert there. And he's, uh, if you've heard any episode of this podcast so far, you know that um, Brian Wilson is one of our musical heroes. And we both felt we really needed music more than ever. So we went and uh, truth be told, Brian himself was hardly present at all. He just pretty much sat there, hardly even opened his mouth. Frankly, I don't think he should have even been there because he's obviously in severe physical pain. He had to be helped out on stage and he was limping really badly. And he had just recently had back surgery because, well, apparently back problems run in the Wilson family uh, from the Beach Boys, of course. Uh, apparently, Carl Wilson had some back problems. And their father, Murray, had back problems. I think Carney Wilson has back problems, too. And at 76, a history of back problems isn't good for you, you know. Um, he was clearly uncomfortable. He hardly even opened his mouth the whole show. Like uh, a lot of other people in the band kind of sang a lead on a lot of the songs. He only sang complete lead vocal, I think three songs, but nonetheless, the show was incredible. The band was amazing. The stage setup was, was beautiful. It was a, a Christmas show. Really? They did the entire beach boys Christmas album and a few, uh, songs off of Brian Wilson's solo Christmas album from, uh, uh, 2005. And a few other things. It was not a typical Brian Wilson Beach Boys kind of show, but it was still, there was the music that they put out was just absolutely incredible. And yeah, it was 24 hours after I had lost my little doggy, my, my favorite little puppy. And I felt incredible. I really did. I was just so ecstatic walking out of that place. It helped me tremendously. And I know it helped Lisa a lot too. I guess another positive that we could take away from this experience is that Ruthie knew damn well that she was loved because we were telling her all the time we were disgusting, <laughs> uh, which I guess is a good thing. We kept telling, Oh, Ruthie, we love you so much. You're such a good girl. And I think she liked, I think she liked living with us. So she was a, uh, always a happy little dog and she slept a lot too. She, my wife said before we got her, she said, I want to get a lazy damn dog. And Ruthie was very lazy. When we went th on the brew website, they show you all the beagles they have for their up for adoption. And, uh, one of the little icons, they have like different icons. Like they'll have like a little house icon to indicate the dog's better in a house. They'll give you a different icon. If the dog's good for an apartment, uh, another icon to tell you that'll tell you if the dog is good with other animals, whatever. Well, one of the icons next to Ruthie was a little icon of a couch and the guide said that the couch indicates that the dog is a couch potato. And boy, Ruthie was such a couch potato. <laughs> really, she, a, lot of, a lot of beagles, especially, are just absolutely insane crazy. And we knew that going into this. And we're the kind of people who can kind of handle that, I guess. But Ruthie was a very mellow little girl. She would just kind of 
sleep all day. So, I mean, she would play with toys too. And she was always up for a walk. She used to love going for rides in the car, but I guess later when she figured out that if she was going for a ride, it was either to the vet or to the boarding facility. (laughs) So she learned to not be too excited about going for a ride in the car, but she, she was such a sweet little girl too. She loved everybody. The only qualification you needed for Ruthie to love you was that you had to be a human being. That's it. She loved everybody. She didn't care about gender or race or size, any of that. It's just, you had to be a human. And she was an attention slut too. She would always, always, always crave attention. Like whenever you take her for a walk, this happened many times. You, we'd go for a walk. There'd be two people on the sidewalk having a conversation. Ruthie would actually walk in between them and look at them and say, Hey, look, I'm a puppy. Give me affection. And she charmed the hell out of everybody. Oh boy. And interestingly too, she was a quiet little girl too. Usually beagles are known for being noisy. There's one explanation for the word beagle that it's a Celtic word or something that means loudmouth, And that's true because most beagles use so much as flinch. They will go absolutely crazy and howl their crazy heads off. Ruthie didn't do that though. She was pretty quiet. The only time she would ever bark or howl is when I would feed her. She was like, she was telling me, hurry up, hurry up. And sometimes when Lisa would feed her too, but usually I got the most of it. And uh, the other times she would bark is if she was approached by another dog for some reason, this is weird. For some reason, she did not like other dogs, although she loved people. The exception was beagles. She was okay with beagles and almost as okay with basset hounds, but anybody else, forget it. She didn't want anything to do with uh, any other dogs, but she was such a good little girl too. She was the sweetest little puppy and I miss her terribly and I'm always going to love her. All right. Cue the violins. I know, (laughs) but, uh, what else can I say other than, uh, I've known a lot of people who said, who've gone through losing a pet and they say, well, I'm never going to have another dog again. I can't go through that again. And let me tell you, it is incredibly hard. If you've, if you've never lost a pet, it's, it's hard to explain how difficult it is. It's, it's like losing any other loved one, seriously. But having said that, we are going to be getting another beagle. We had a talk years ago because we knew that the day would have to come. We have to say goodbye to Ruthie. So just years ago, when we knew it was still going to be at least naturally a ways off before we'd ever have to worry about that, we said, okay, here, let's talk about what to do when that time comes. And I said to Lisa, I said, I just want you to know I'm always going to want a dog. And she said, oh, me too, for sure. And even um, after Ruthie had already passed and we were still with her in the uh, the emergency vet, Lisa said, you want to get another dog, right? I said, oh, yeah. And she said, good, because we need one. So in the summer, most likely, is when that's going to happen. And that's the same strategy we use with Ruthie. Um, Lisa is a teacher. And so she's off for uh, a few days in June, all of July, and about three weeks in August. So she'll be basically home a lot more. And the whole strategy that we came up with was let's adopt during the summer. So that way somebody is going to be home during the day. And uh, that'll help make rehoming and everything nice and smooth. You know, we'll we'll be able to uh, learn how the dog's going to behave and the dog will be able to 
kind of learn to uh, live with us and whatever else have you. I, well, you get the point, but it's weird. I mean, right. I mean, yeah, I miss Ruthie terribly, but really the hardest thing right now is just not having a dog to reach down and scritch and give a belly rub and stuff. But we're taking the opportunity because we really need to get our apartment in better shape. We need to clean the floors and repaint the walls and everything. So we're going to be doing that. And uh, Lisa said, we got to look at it this way. We have to make sure that Ruthie's successor is going to feel very welcome. So yeah, that's, um, that's what we're going to do, but that's all I'm going to say. Really? I just wanted to get that out while I could. So if you've listened to me this long, thank you. I appreciate that. Besides that, we had Thanksgiving the week before, which didn't really go so well this, uh, this year. Uh, we went to New Jersey to spend the, uh, Thanksgiving weekend at my mother-in-law's house. And, uh, I hate to say it, but that was really a disaster. And, uh, maybe it's a good thing we were there for her though, because the problem was, uh, there were some major plumbing issues in her house. Uh, at Thanksgiving, we learned that we couldn't run any water at all, flush the toilets, take showers or anything without the downstairs toilet overflowing. And it turned out that there was, uh, some blockage in the sewer pipe outside. And, uh, of course it was extremely difficult to find somebody to come out on Thanksgiving. We did find somebody, he did something, but it didn't take. So he had to come the next day and thankfully that solved the problem, but uh, not thankfully it cost my mother-in-law a, a lot of money and, uh, you know, she's retired now. So it's, so that was a pretty big financial burden for her, <sighs> but we were, I was so glad to be back. In fact, Monday at work, I actually looked out the window and said, thank God I'm back here. And, uh, hopefully next year, next Thanksgiving will be better. Um, and, uh, of course it was great to come home and see Ruthie. So uh, that, that helped big time too. So, uh, yeah. And I told my wife, given that we had a crappy Thanksgiving and that we just lost Ruthie, I can't wallow in sadness and anger or whatever. I need to do something nice every day in December and hopefully from then on, not just December. So, um, December 1st, we went to, uh, have kind of a really super late lunch at peace, which is a pizza place in the wicker park neighborhood of Chicago. And it's co-owned by Rick Nielsen from cheap trick. Uh, we love their pizza there. So we had a nice meal there. We came back home and got comfortable so I guess that was nice. And, uh, it's now December 2nd as I record this and I enjoy podcasting. So I look at this as a good thing that I'm doing, hopefully going to be doing more good thing today, but there we have it. And I'm just really glad that I have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this schnooks life story. Now, having said that, since this is going into the holidays and I say holidays, not to derail Christmas or anything, but there are so many different holidays there. Like right now there's Hanukkah going on. There's going to be Christmas. Some people celebrate Kwanzaa. So that's coming up boxing day. Uh, new year's Eve is coming up and I'm sure I'm leaving some out that I'm not thinking of. So that's why people say happy holidays. It's not a war on Christmas. It's just to make sure that everybody's included. So that's the way I see it. But since this is going into whatever holiday you celebrate, if you choose to celebrate a holiday, what's a big component of holidays, but shopping. So this episode, this chapter, chapter two of autobiography of a schnook, there's going to be a little bit of a shopping focus on it. 
I'll tell you about the malls that I knew as I was a kid and why they were special to me. I'll tell you about one particular thing that happened at one of those malls and something really not shopping related at all, but it does kind of tie back to when I was talking about the night that our beagle had to cross the rainbow bridge, as it were. This was totally unintentional, by the way. I actually had this all planned out before any of this happened. But the Music for Schnooks segment will be kind of related to something I was talking about with that. But in the meantime, let's learn about Sean's life with the mall. For the first 11 years of my life, I knew that there had to be somewhere, anywhere, better than the Kankakee area. I was born at St. Mary's Hospital in Kankakee, the same place where my mom went through nurses training, during which time she met my dad. From then to the summer of 1986, I lived in Bourbonnais. At one time, Kankakee was a major farming town and had a pretty nice downtown, but that was long before I was born, and from what I gather, it hadn't been that way since my dad was a child. I didn't like living there, and for the most part, I didn't like the people, although we had a couple of neighbors that we were good friends with and who sympathized with our dislike of the community. There wasn't much to do in greater metropolitan Kankakee, not much at all. There was a golf course in Bourbonnais called Bon Vivant, or Bon Vivant as some people called it. My dad and my brother Scott did use it frequently when the weather was nice. As for me, I was never a golf fan unless it involved a small windmill. A few miles north was Mantino, which had even less to do, but its claim to fame was and still is, I gather, the Mantino Sportsman's Club, which at the time, for $80 a year, you had access to their golf course and swimming in Lake Mantino, among other activities, I assume. There were parks here and there where kids could play. Every couple of miles, you'd happen upon a strip mall, and just over the Bradley-Kankakee border on the Kankakee side was the Meadowview Shopping Center. That was the big, and I'm doing finger quotes here, place to go if you needed to buy stuff. My mom would frequent Stewart's, which if I recall correctly is a women's clothing store, and J.C. Penney, which unlike most J.C. Penney stores contained only women's and children's clothing and a catalog redemption center, nothing else. The truly big store, and even then it wasn't all that big, was Sears across the parking lot from J.C. Penney, and at least that Sears had everything you'd expect a Sears store to have back then. My brother Scott, who was ten years my senior, would go to Chicago Record Service for his Kiss albums. Meadowview had a three-screen movie theater, and for a time a video game arcade called Wizard of Games. Woolworth had a store in Meadowview, and I recall many times having a cheeseburger at the lunch counter. I seem to remember Meadowview had a Baskin-Robbins and later a TCBY. One of the few good things about the Kankakee area was actually right there in Meadowview, the Little Corporal restaurant, named after the Emperor Napoleon, of course. The Little Corporal had really good food. I would always have a cheeseburger there, and when they had chicken noodle soup, it was to die for. The light fixtures looked like colonial-era drums and bugles, so they really kept the Little Corporal theme going, although I don't think Napoleon is really considered colonial, but hey, we'll forgive him. But in the back of the restaurant, there was a cocktail lounge that also acted as an overflow dining room for the main restaurant. To this day, my mom tells me that Barry Manilow would play there before he hit the big time. The other restaurant I remember at Meadowview was Lum's Pancake House, which was eventually renamed Abner's. On one end of the parking lot near the cinema was a small office building that once housed my mother's dentist, whom she ended up suing eventually for malpractice. 
Interestingly, in that same building now is the radio station where I worked for two years. But uh, of course, when I worked there, it was not anywhere near Meadowview, uh, but that's a story for another chapter. So you probably noticed I spent a little bit of time talking about my upbringing in Kankakee County, but spent a lot of time specifically on Meadowview Shopping Center. For shopping, that was pretty much the only place to go. The Kankakee area didn't have a real mall at the time, and downtown Kankakee didn't have much, and nowadays has literally almost nothing. So what did Kankakeeans do when they needed to do some serious shopping? They'd take a 25-mile drive up Interstate 57 and go to the Lincoln Mall in Matson. I don't remember Matson ever having anything going for it besides Lincoln Mall. Everything in that town was either the mall or shopping centers and little strip malls that sprang up because of the mall. Lincoln Mall was so-called because it was indeed a mall. Oh, and also because it was located on Lincoln Highway on uh, U.S. Route 30 where Cicero Avenue crosses. Once a month, we'd go to Lincoln Mall to shop how the rest of the world shopped. Usually on the way there, we'd stop at a Frank's Nursery and Crafts that was a few minutes down the road. My mom would get something for her garden, and she's always been into crafts. Depending on the weather, either we'd all go in for that half hour my mother would spend in Frank's, or my father, brother, and I would stay in the car and listen to whatever baseball game happened to be on the radio, even though I uh, never really liked baseball. Sometimes my brother would excuse himself to browse in the music store that was in the same shopping center. Down the road from the mall was a Venture store. Those of you who don't know or remember what Venture was, it was a big box discount store along the lines of Target, except Venture also had a cafeteria. Sometimes we'd go there either before or after the mall. But those trips to the mall were exciting for a little kid who was trapped in Bourbonnet and wanted desperately to see the world. Look at all this stuff to do! Wow! And what's that off in the distance? It's the Sears Tower. You can see Chicago's skyscrapers. That means there's an exciting world out there just ready for me to conquer. Lincoln Mall had been around since shortly before I was born, so I guess you could say I grew up with it. Those years we went to the mall were, I consider, the golden age of malls. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast could mark off what I'm going to say as part of a mall checklist, as I've heard similar stories of other malls in the country from other people. But here's how a typical day at the mall would be for the Courtney family. We'd park on the second floor of the mall at J.C. Penney, one of the four anchor stores. The other anchor stores were Montgomery Ward, Carson Peary Scott & Company, and Weebolts. But because Mom grew up in Chicago, she has to make everything a possessive, so she called them Pennies, Wards, Carsons, and, uh, well, Weebolts was already possessive. But anyway, we'd go in through J.C. Penney, although I don't really remember spending significant time there. We'd just go straight into the main part of the mall. Once we'd step outside of J.C. Penney, we'd hear festive music echoing from a Baldwin piano and organ store, where usually a random fat guy in a suit was demoing one of the organs. Mom would tell us she was going to her stores, such as Wicks and Sticks and All That Glitters. At that point, my dad, my brother, and I would do our own thing, and we'd agree on a time and location to meet Mom, usually downstairs in the seating area outside of Montgomery—excuse me, wards. Scott, being ten years older than me, was old enough to go off on his own, so usually he would, but sometimes he'd stay with Dad and me. We'd usually stop at Record Bar, which in the late 80s would become Musicland— but usually at least one of us would walk away from Record Bar with a new piece of vinyl. My dad and I would usually split a box of buttered popcorn from the Caramel Corn store, where we would also take in the aromas of pizza coming from the nearby Orange Bowl. 
when I was a little kid, there was a store I liked to visit called the Joker's Wild. I don't know exactly how you'd classify it, but they would sell monster masks and they had one of those crazy mirrors. I loved that mirror. That's why I wanted to go to that store. When we first went there, I was too young to know the name of the store, but I would say, I want to go look at the funnies, and Dad knew exactly what I meant. The Joker's Wild moved out probably when I was five years old, though, and no amount of Googling could turn up any historic information for me. As with most malls, Lincoln Mall had a corridor where there were restrooms, but down that corridor you could also rent lockers and strollers, a feature I've seen at no other mall to this day. The strollers were horse-shaped, and I definitely remember being plunked down on one of those things when I was young enough. We'd usually have lunch at the McDonald's. If any of my friends are listening, they may be surprised that reminiscing of pleasant memories would involve McDonald's. After all, I've been boycotting McDonald's since 1994. Um, having said that, uh, McDonald's, I would be happy to accept you as a sponsor. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the McDonald's at the Lincoln Mall was actually really good. First of all, the food was surprisingly delicious. Second, there was a special feature at that McDonald's that I've seen nowhere else, be it another McDonald's or anywhere else. On the menu panel above the counter, there was a secondhand timer that would count a minute. There was a sign under the timer that said that from the moment you order the food, that secondhand would not make a complete revolution by the time you got your food, and darned if it wasn't true every single time. But, okay, since I hate McDonald's, I do have to say something not positive. It was at this McDonald's when, at an early age, I uh, unfortunately learned of my intolerance to onions the hard way. Uh, let's just say it reminded me of uh, two times we tried to go to my Uncle Nick's house for Thanksgiving, and uh, if you don't know what I'm referring to, please listen to Chapter 1. By the way, it may be worth mentioning that the mall did not have a food court. All the food places were separate storefronts, but other than McDonald's and the Orange Bowl, I don't really remember what the other food joints were. For all I know, those might have been the only places where you could get what you may consider a meal, as in those days it wasn't uncommon for department stores to have their own cafeterias. For example, JCPenney had its own coffee shop where you could actually get a full breakfast or lunch. Lincoln Mall had most of the stores you'd expect to see in a mall. It had the standard mall bookstores, B. Dalton Bookseller and Walden Books, and it also had a much larger bookstore called Crocs and Brentano's. Seriously, that was a huge store, almost the size of a Borders or Barnes & Noble. For shoes, the mall had Foot Locker and Stride Right, of course. For toys and games, there was Circus World. And of course, what would a mall have been without Chess King, Casual Corner, a Hickory Farm storefront, and The Gap? Remember the orange sign? Across the parking lot from the mall was the Lincoln Mall Cinema, but we never went there. But getting back to our typical monthly trips to Lincoln Mall, our usual pattern, which I don't think ever altered, was to enter the mall via JCPenney on the upper level, like I said before, work our way around the mall on the upper level, then take an escalator in the middle of the mall down to the second level, which, when I was a little kid, kind of scared me a little bit. But we'd work our way around the mall on the lower level and then end up back in JCPenney, and then take the elevator back up to the second floor, and as a little kid, the elevator felt kind of weird to me. Maybe we'd stop in the little coffee shop in JCPenney and have a drink or something, and then we'd leave. But let me get back to that escalator trip down to the lower level of the mall. I used to be fascinated looking down to the first floor from the second floor, especially when I was a toddler and my head wouldn't even reach the railing. I'd look through the glass that had it not been there, 
I could have easily fallen right through onto the first floor. When you're a child that young, the height from the second floor to the first floor is pretty intimidating, especially when you also look at the ceiling. It looks astronomically high when you're that young. Perhaps that's why going down the escalator in the middle of the mall scared me when I was a wee tot. But once downstairs, there were things that were typical of malls that you just don't see anymore. There were really nice sunken seating areas made of cobblestones, uh, of course with signs urging parents to not allow their kids to climb. There was at least one fountain where people would inevitably toss a coin. In the mall's later years, the fountains were gone and the sunken cobblestone seating areas were replaced with just yeah, flat floors with benches. The lower level of Lincoln Mall had something, though, that would shape my life for decades to come. Just a space or two away from Montgomery Ward was a place that was at first called Le Mans Speedway. Scott loved going there. I remember going to Le Mans Speedway once or twice. It was a pinball arcade. I liked playing the pinball machines, but it was too much sensory overload for my five-year-old eyes and ears. My final assessment, I would love this place if it weren't so loud and noisy. But one day during our monthly trips, that same location was now called Aladdin's Castle, and it became a video game arcade, albeit with a decent number of pinball machines, too. Aladdin's Castle couldn't have come at a better time. In 1982, I had just been introduced to the world that is video games. A visit to a Holiday Inn introduced me to Donkey Kong, Space Invaders, which I previously played on an Atari 2600 and had no idea there was a big version, as my seven-year-old self would call them at the time, and Pac-Man, sparking a Pac-Man fever in me that to this day is still infecting me. But wow, here was a whole storefront full of these games. And it seemed that over the next few years, Aladdin's castle just kept getting bigger and bigger. By the time it grew to its largest, it was actually rechristened Bally's Aladdin's Castle. Many who remember Aladdin's Castle at that mall will talk of the bumper car track that was in the back, but honestly, I don't remember ever a bumper car track. What I do remember is that in the room that apparently once housed those bumper cars actually contained a lot of those cocktail table style video games. In fact, that's where I first played Ms. Pac-Man and eventually the cocktail tables were replaced by Neo Geo machines. I'm guessing the bumper cars were there when it was still called Le Mans Speedway, but wow, Aladdin's Castle was the highlight of our monthly trips to Lincoln Mall. Dad would give me a dollar, which at Aladdin's Castle would give you four tokens, but that was it, no more than a dollar. No extra quarters, no nothing, just a dollar. If my brother had a leftover token he wasn't going to use, or if I found a stray token on the floor, I'd be allowed to use it. But Dad made it clear he wasn't giving me one cent more for video games. It was always heartbreaking to lose my last life on whatever game I'd play my last token, especially if I didn't score so well. Then again, playing four arcade games once a month guaranteed that I would never score well at all. Lincoln Mall, however, was not the only mall where we could have shopped. When we'd visit any of my relatives, our route would take us through Orland Park, which was roughly equidistant from our home in Bourbonnais. The centerpiece of Orland Park was the Orland Square Mall, which opened in 1976. We drove past it for years before ever going there, but one day in 1983, we decided to check it out. Orland Square was a little bit bigger than Lincoln Mall, but as my dad said, definitely prettier. The anchor stores were Marshall Field & Company, Carson Peary Scott & Company, J.C. Penney, and Sears, or as my Chicago-born mother called them, Fields, Carson's, again, Penney's, again, and, um, well, Sears already had Ness at the end. Orland Square also is a two-floor mall, although Marshall Field actually had three floors, 
There are a lot of stores that Lincoln Mall also had, such as Record Bar and those two little bookstores, B. Dalton and Walden Books. There were some additional stores as well, such as Musicland and a jewelry store that, as far as I can tell, was exclusive to the Chicago area and called Bailey Banks and Biddle. Interestingly, Musicland eventually bought out Record Bar, which meant that for a time, Orland actually had two Musiclands in the same mall. There wasn't a caramel corn store, however, but Dad and I carried over our popcorn habit anyway and got a box at the Sears candy counter. And whereas Lincoln Mall had a Baldwin store and also a Wurlitzer store, Orland Square had Ortegara's Musicville. One thing Orland Square had that Lincoln Mall never did was a food court. The food joints in the Orland Square food court, I think, were unique to Orland Square because I've never seen them anywhere else. There was the Great Potato Company or the Great Potato Factory, I don't remember exactly, but it was the Great Potato something or other. There was also Whistle Stop Hot Dogs. If you liked Chinese food, you could get some from Charlie Chan. I don't remember the other eateries except mine of choice, Burgerville Junction. I've always loved cheeseburgers, so that's where I gravitated. Burgerville Junction had a train theme. The menu items were named with rail terms and potential station stops. The menu item I would always get was called Cheeseburg. There was even a model train traversing a track built around the counter. I remember back then my condiment of choice for french fries was mustard. And when I asked for mustard for my fries at Burgerville Junction, it wasn't those little packets of mustard. Instead, they would hand me a little paper plate with a pool of mustard on it with a diameter slightly more than that of a silver dollar. But as with Lincoln Mall, Orland's movie theater was across the parking lot, and again, I don't think we ever saw any movies there. If I'm not mistaken, the movie theater is actually now inside the mall, and the building that used to be the movie theater is now part of Robert Morris University. Orland Square offered some different features from what I was used to at Lincoln Mall. For one thing, unlike with Lincoln Mall, instead of a skylight in the ceiling, the ceiling was solid, but underneath the ceiling, the wall had panels of glass that would allow the natural light in. As with Lincoln Mall, there were escalators and regular stairs dividing the two levels, plus a ramp. A ramp! How cool is that? And perhaps the coolest feature was what I heard one of Scott's friends talk about before, an elevator in which you could see the cables above the elevator car. That was way cool. Yeah, that's a common thing now, but really, when you're that young, you find that overly fascinating. But Orland Square was missing something very, very important. It had no arcade. After our first visit to Orland, my brother swore he went down every wing on both levels of the mall, but nope, no arcade. Oh, please, I thought. Orland's bigger than Lincoln Mall. It's gotta have an arcade. Back at school, one of my classmates said, yes, it does have an arcade. I said, oh yeah, then what's it called? Wizards of War, he said. I pointed out how it's interesting that he would say there's an arcade called Wizards of War when, number one, there's a popular video game called Wizard of War, and number two, the arcade in Meadowview was called Wizard of Games. But he swore up and down that Orland had a video arcade called Wizards of War. The next time we went to Orland Square, my dad actually asked a worker on my behalf if there was an arcade in the mall. She confirmed that indeed there was none. Ah, drat. Somehow, though, I was able to accept that. You would think that I would have thrown a temper tantrum or something, but nope. Thankfully, the trips to Orland Square didn't seem to replace our monthly trips to Lincoln Mall, so I still got my monthly fix of four, or if my dad wanted to play a game of Ms. Pac-Man, three arcade games. 
In late July 1986, that dream of getting the hell away from Kankakee came true when we moved to Joliet after my dad got a job there a year or so before. Alas, with that move to what I saw as the promised land came an end to our monthly trips to the Lincoln Mall. Now that we lived somewhere worth living, we had not a mall but two malls, Jefferson Square and Louis Joliet Mall. Jefferson Square, so-called because of its location on Jefferson Street, the busiest street in town, was a pretty dinky single-level mall. It only had two anchor stores, Weebolts and Montgomery Ward. Most of the stores were typical mall stores, although I don't remember most of them, honestly. I'm pretty sure Jefferson Square had both B. Dalton and Walden books, of course. And because I'm a music guy, I remember there was a music land, which by that point had become extremely overpriced. And there was also another record store called Pumpkin Charlie's, which had a selection that was both very limited and very overpriced. The mall's movie theater was inside the mall, and next door to the cinema was an indoor miniature golf course. Did the mall have an arcade? Yup. That game place. But by the time we moved to Joliet, most of the games that I liked playing were phased out, and I didn't really like the newer games. So to me, having that game place was as good as not having a place to play video games at all. Then there was Louis Joliet Mall, which was way out west on the outskirts of town, bordering Plainfield. This was the much better mall, in my opinion. Still just one level, but a lot more to do. There were four anchor stores, JCPenney, Marshall Field, Bergner, and Sears. Now, say it with me, my mother always called them Pennies, Fields, Bergners, and uh, Sears. The Bergner chain would eventually be bought out by Carson Perry Scott and Company. There was and still is, I believe, a food court. I remember it containing a McDonald's, A&W, Sbarro, and Taco Bell. I know there was a Chinese place too, but I don't remember the name of it, nor do I remember what else was in that food court. But near the back of the food court and just outside the food court was Aladdin's Castle! Woohoo! But it was a very small Aladdin's Castle, at least compared to the one at Lincoln Mall, and it didn't have the Bally's name attached to it. Huh. And sadly, in terms of selection, it was basically that game place, but with one or two token classics. But still, in my opinion, it was a much better mall than Jefferson Square, although many disagreed with me. You may have heard Chris Rock once talk about how every locale had two malls. The mall where white people went and the mall where white people used to go. Jefferson Square fell into that second category, well, except it wasn't the mall that white people used to go, but pretty much everybody. There was a huge decline in shoppers at Jefferson Square after a gang shooting happened there sometime in the early 90s. So they tried to spice things up by renaming it the Wilderness Mall. Strange name for a mall in a pretty large city that's far from any wilderness, so why was it called the Wilderness Mall? Because a renovation added some wildernessy decor. Oh, there's that red line again. Shut up, red line. Wildernessy is a word. Its centerpiece was a huge, fake, plastic redwood trunk in the middle of the mall. If anything, that helped the mall die sooner than it would have otherwise. One time during my brief radio career, the station was doing a giveaway, and it was up to the air talent to determine how to give away the prizes during their shifts. When I was on the air that weekend, my contest was this. Name all eight of the businesses still present at the Wilderness Mall. I stopped there on my way to the station that day and actually took notes. I think it was the late 90s when the mall completely died, and all that's left now is the Menards that took over Weebolts. Sadly, that Chris Rock statement also applied to what was my locale from the day I was born until that July day in 1986. The two malls for my locale, Orland Square and Lincoln Mall. 
Lincoln Mall really started to decline, partly because of its lack of a food court, apparently. Occasionally, we'd go back to that mall after moving to Joliet, but it was just sad to see it resemble nothing like what I remember. Aladdin's castle shrunk significantly each time we went back. In fact, sometime in 1997, a couple of friends asked me to meet them at Lincoln Mall just to hang out after work one Friday night. Aladdin's castle now no longer even had a name. It was just a storefront that was literally wide enough to have two aisles of video games, all of which were either beat-em-ups like The Simpsons and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and, well, let's be realistic, they're the same game, just different graphics, or one-on-one fighting games along the lines of Mortal Kombat. Little by little, Lincoln Mall literally shrunk. At least one or two anchor stores had folded, and when the mall couldn't replace those stores, those wings of the mall just closed permanently and were demolished. Due to various circumstances, a judge ordered the mall to completely go out of business in 2015, and two years later the mall was demolished, save for Carson Perry Scott and Company, which the mall itself didn't actually own. But even then, Carson's went out of business in early 2018, officially making Lincoln Mall 100% dead. Now, Matson doesn't really have anything except car dealerships and a megachurch. Sure, Orland Square still exists, but it's not like it once was. A lot of the charm about it that I loved in the early 80s has been replaced with banal whiteness that makes it look no different from any other mall. The ramp was taken out at some point, and the food court no longer has those unique eateries. So in a way, my Orland Square also is dead. I think the death of the mall actually happened in the 90s. That's when one mall wasn't much different from the next. I think it really occurred to me when I visited the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota in the fall of 1992. Largest indoor mall in the world? Sure, but that's all it was, just a large mall, a four-level mall. The fourth floor consisted entirely of movie theaters, and through the rest of the mall there were multiple occurrences of the same store, so you wouldn't actually have to meander the entire mall to go to a particular business. So, uh, what's the point? Well, of course, they also had Camp Snoopy, which is fine if indoor amusement parks are your thing. But other than that, it's a big mall with nothing you can't get in any other mall. Sometime in the 90s, the Northfield Square Mall was born. Located in Bradley, Northfield Square finally gave the Kankakee area a sorely needed place to shop with stores that, well, people have actually heard of. I've been there a few times, but hey, it's a 90s mall. There are only two things I remember. First, the food court had a Taco John's, which I only recently learned exists outside the Kankakee area. But at least when I was a kid, Taco John's claim to fame was they'd give kids free tacos for A's on their report card. Uh, Limit two, if I recall correctly. The other thing I remember was a small statuary that I can't believe actually got past whatever approval processes were in place. I have a picture of it, and I will absolutely link it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. You know, it's kind of funny. When malls were all the rage, they were blamed for the death of the downtown. By nature, malls were designed to be on the outskirts of town. Case in point, as I said before, Louis Joliet Mall was built on the far side of town, right on the town's border. Before that mall, the hot spot in town was Chicago Street downtown, where all the major department stores once were. The purpose of shopping malls was to make it easy for people who live off the beaten path to go shopping without having to trudge all the way downtown hoping to find a place to park for a reasonable price. Unfortunately, the birth of malls encouraged the stores to leave Main Street for the suburban indoor shopping centers. But 
here we are now mourning the deaths of the malls we used to know as downtowns are rebuilding. Sad exception, however, being downtown Joliet, which is practically abandoned these days. The malls that exist now are pretty much all the same. They seemingly all have the same stores that cater to teenagers, especially girls, with not much variety at all. So yes, the mall as I knew, during what I consider the golden age of indoor malls, is dead. Rest in peace, mall. Wow, I have some really fond memories of both Lincoln Mall and Orland Square. Interestingly, the memory that I have the most detail of is from when I wasn't even five years old yet. Somehow I remember it very, very well, enough that I can tell the story. So for this next segment of Chapter 2, I will take you back to the late 1970s, with Sean as a budding schnook at the tender age of almost five. A tradition for David Letterman was that on his last show each year before Christmas, Jay Thomas would be one of his guests and would tell his famous Lone Ranger story. If you've never heard Jay's Lone Ranger story, I strongly urge you to look it up on YouTube. It's a classic shaggy dog story with a wonderful punchline. I'm not going to tell the story myself. Instead, I have my own Lone Ranger story, but I confess that it's not quite as classic. In the summer of 1979, my parents had learned that the Lone Ranger would be making an appearance at the Lincoln Mall. They made a huge deal about going to the mall so that I could meet the Lone Ranger. Only problem is, I had no idea who this Lone Ranger character was. It was August 1979, about two months shy of my fifth birthday, when the Lone Ranger would be there in person to sign autographs, and I would be there to meet him. My mother went off to do her usual shopping, while my dad took me to the Lone Ranger's line. Again, I need to emphasize, I had zero idea who the Lone Ranger was or why my parents made it a big deal for me to meet him. It came close to my turn to meet the Lone Ranger. My dad bent over to talk to me and said, Now make sure you say to him, I see you on TV. Once again, I'm perplexed. I never saw this guy on TV. Ever. Nonetheless, when it was my turn in line, I dutifully said to him as my dad told me to, I see you on TV. The Lone Ranger said something to me in response, but I don't remember what. I'm pretty sure it was very friendly, though. He gave me an autographed picture, and I was on my way. Of course, I did eventually learn who the Lone Ranger was, and my thought always was simply that whom I saw was just a guy in a Lone Ranger costume. <laughs> Big deal. Now, let's flash forward to the 90s. I'm in college, specifically the College of St. Francis in Joliet, Illinois, where I was living. I didn't live on campus. I still lived at home at the parents' house. It was only a mile away, so why live on campus? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But one day I was cleaning out a junk drawer, and I found three peculiar autographs from my childhood. One was a Mickey Mouse autograph I got when I was maybe four years old. Mickey's autograph? Garbage can. I also found an autograph from Eric Jackson. Who is Eric Jackson? Well, one day, most likely in 1984, my dad took me to a place called the Carriage Lane Mall, which was either in Bradley or Kankakee, I don't remember. It wasn't a real mall per se, just basically a warehouse full of random vendors. In one of the vendor areas, there were break dancers and a Michael Jackson impersonator. That's what my dad took me to see. 
a Michael Jackson impersonator. His name was Eric Jackson, and he was signing autographs. Why did I get an autograph from an impersonator? No freaking clue. To Sean, God bless you, Eric Jackson. Nice sentiment, but not from anybody worth a dime. Eric Jackson's autograph? Garbage can. Then I found the autograph from that day in August 1979 that I remembered so well, but I remembered simply because I was getting an autograph from someone I didn't know from Adam. It was signed, The Lone Ranger. There was no indicator that it was THE Lone Ranger, Clayton Moore, nor was there any contact information for an agency of record for whoever this guy was in the Lone Ranger costume. It just supported my belief that my parents took me to a mall 30 miles away to meet a guy dressed as the Lone Ranger, just as you'd see a guy in a Santa Claus costume, or of course, a Mickey Mouse character actor. Confident that I had an autograph from a guy in a Lone Ranger costume, the autograph photo of, well, whoever was wearing the Lone Ranger costume, garbage can. It only makes sense that since we skipped two decades for this flashback, we should skip two decades again. Let's talk about sometime in or after 2010. I've become an adult long since I met that guy dressed as the Lone Ranger. I'm married and living in Chicago. Lincoln Mall was a special place for me in the 70s and 80s. I googled Lincoln Mall in hopes of finding perhaps some vintage pictures of the mall. But what did I find? A blog entry or two talking about that day in August 1979 when the Lone Ranger was at the Lincoln Mall, complete with pictures. And what's more? It turned out it was Clayton Moore, the real Lone Ranger. Not the only or original actor to play the Lone Ranger, mind you, but the definitive Lone Ranger. And I had thrown out an autographed picture of Clayton Moore. To this day, I'm at a loss as to why he signed the picture of the Lone Ranger and there was no mention of Clayton Moore anywhere, not even on the back, and no contact information for his agent. Can you blame me for not believing it to be the real thing? If you're interested in a Lone Ranger autographed picture from August 1979, it's probably somewhere long covered up in a garbage dump in Joliet. Happy hunting! Oh, and where do my wife and I live in Chicago? Just a few feet away from the alma mater of one Clayton Moore. We take our dog to defecate on the lawn where Clayton Moore went to high school. That certainly adds insult to injury after throwing away his autographed picture. I offer my apologies to the late Clayton Moore. Mr. Moore, wherever you are, I sincerely apologize. And since that fateful day in 1979... I actually have seen you on TV. As I look back on that time and think about meeting the Lone Ranger at a time when I had no idea who the guy was, I realize in the past 44 years, I never once made an effort to watch the Lone Ranger's TV show or even listen to the old radio shows before Clayton Moore was even the Lone Ranger. The only time I ever really saw the Lone Ranger was in a Happy Days episode, as far as I know. All I know is that the Lone Ranger was a character who lived his life with very high moral standards, and Clayton Moore did as well. He felt that if he was going to be out in public portraying this hero to little kids who wants to do the right thing at all times, then by golly, he should do the same thing in real life. And I guess that's kind of what I want to do too. I just want to, I, I guess I want to be known as a good guy. I want to be known as someone who makes people happy, especially if it involves music. So having said that, yes, this was a contrived transition into chapter two's music for schnooks. And this time it's going to be about something that I hold very near and dear to my heart. 
If you walk through the doors of 4545 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago on a Thursday night, you'll find a crowd of people, most of whom playing instruments, participating in a sing-along. Your ears will be treated to a raucous rendition of Down by the Riverside, Sloop John B., The Wait, or perhaps when summer begins, Wild Mountain Time. Near the building's entrance, you can see guitars that were owned by Big Bill Brunzi and John Lennon, and one of Pete Seeger's banjos with one of his trademark This Machine Destroys messages. Traverse that building or the main building across the street any day, and there will be classes in progress where people learn how to play oud, choreograph some dance moves, or collaborate on an arrangement of a song by Wilco or The Grateful Dead. And for the time being, the same things might be going on at 909 West Armitage Avenue, just a short ride on the CTA Brown Line from the Lincoln Avenue buildings. This is the Old Town School of Folk Music. Steve Goodman, John Prine, Roger McWynn. If one or more of those names sound familiar, you have the Old Town School to thank for helping them get started. Speaking of McGuinn, if you're a fan of his, you may remember that he talked about the school on his Live from Mars album from 1996. In fact, that's how I first found out about the Old Town School. Yes, I was 21 years old. Yes, I never heard of the school before. What do you want from me? I was just a young, ignorant, recent college grad from the Burbs. I didn't know what was going on in the city. But hey, the fact that I never heard of it certainly meant that it must have closed long ago, right? Well, I guess what I already said kind of gave it away that no, it did not close, and yes, it is still open. But flash forward nine years, specifically August 2005. My wife and I were living in New Jersey, but we were attending Beetlefest at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. Meanwhile, the Clio Theater in Clio, Michigan suddenly closed, which meant that Brian Wilson's scheduled concert there had to be rescheduled at a different venue. By a serendipitous coincidence, the show was rescheduled for the Park West in Chicago while Lisa and I were in town. We were driving down Armitage Avenue, down the street from the Park West, and we passed a building with a sign on it saying Old Town School of Folk Music. Wow, I guess it still exists. Lisa and I had often talked about how we wanted to move to Chicago. Well, I knew that when the time came, I had to take a class at the Old Town School. <laughs> Whom am I kidding? It'll be years before I'll be able to move to Chicago. So flash forward again, seven months. Well, wouldn't you know it, I find out I'm starting a new job in Chicago in May. Due to various circumstances, I can't take an Old Town School class, but I do see a songwriting workshop on the schedule for only 25 bucks. Well, that's something at least. Specifically, the workshop was called Write a Great Song in 20 Minutes, or something along those lines. Uh, spoiler alert, I couldn't. Something about the vibe in the building, a former library, the classroom, the students, the instructor. Something about those vibes told me I was in the right place. I knew that as soon as Lisa and I were back on our feet, I'd be taking regular classes here. A little over a year later, I signed up for my first course, Chicago Blues Harp 1. I've always loved blues, and I had really been wanting to learn how to play harmonica. You can imagine, I was pretty excited to take this course until the Old Town School called me to say they couldn't get enough enrollments, so they had to cancel the course. I had three options, refund, credit, or switch to another course. I told them, let me sleep on that, I'll look through the course catalog, and I'll call you back. As I browsed through the catalog, I noticed something that somehow eluded me when I signed up for the Blues Harp class, Beatles Ensemble. In short, a bunch of people get together and play Beatles songs. Cool. 
That year, the ongoing theme was the Beatles' U.S. albums, and this session would be the American version of Rubber Soul. Faster than you can say Norwegian would, I called the Old Town School and told them to sign me up for that immediately, if not sooner. It was just in time for the first meeting of that session. My acoustic 12-string and I arrived in the basement classroom and met Steve Levitt, the instructor. Steve is your classic aging hippie. Long gray hair and a ponytail. He's a deadhead. In fact, he looks a little like Jerry Garcia now that I think about it. And the kicker, he graduated from Kent State. The man is a legend at the Old Town School. And he's a really nice guy, too. He was very welcoming. And I learned quickly how seriously Steve takes the Beatles, as he should. Keeping in mind that we were doing the American version of Rubber Soul, he made us do the two false starts and I'm looking through you which are found only on the U.S. stereo version. And for those of you who don't really listen to the Beatles or you're just casual listeners, here's what I'm talking about. On the song I'm Looking Through You, as it exists in England, the Beatles' home territory and the official Beatles catalog, their official canon, here's how I'm Looking Through You starts. Something like that. For some reason, though, when Capitol Records released it in America, on the stereo pressing on the album, not the mono pressing, but the stereo pressing, there are a couple of false starts. First you hear this, and then nothing, and then you hear, and then, and then the song goes on like expected. So that was kind of odd, and it just shows how seriously Steve took the Beatles that he made us do those two false starts. In fact, one of the other students in the class told me that when they did Magical Mystery Tour, Steve went so far as to include Death Cab for Cutie, a song by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band that was featured in the Beatles' disastrous 1967 TV special. I only did two sessions of Beatles Ensemble mainly because it was too crowded. A lot of people enroll in that class. We're talking 20, possibly 30 students. What was the point if there were so many people I couldn't even hear myself? My memory fails me as to what I signed up for next. It might have been the Chicago Blues Harp class I wanted before, and it was taught by Greg Gabor, who I believe is no longer at the school. The first thing I learned in that class was how hard it is to blow a single note cleanly on a harmonica. You have to develop an embouchure that involves either puckering your lips tightly enough so that air only goes through one reed, or using your tongue to block the surrounding holes. Bending the note was a new challenge too, it involves even more embouchure, and in my case, jamming and bending the tongue against the comb of the harmonica. Of course, I also learned some history of blues harp and the importance of Little Walter Jacobs, Big Walter Horton, Sonny Boy Williamson, Sonny Boy Williamson too and George Harmonica Smith. By the way, if you've never heard of Walter Horton, he's the harmonica player performing with John Lee Hooker in the movie The Blues Brothers. Stories of Walter's miserable attitude are legendary. One story that I heard was that a teenage fan found out where Walter lived on the south side of Chicago and decided to drop by Walter's house to see if he could get a lesson. This kid procured a bottle of liquor because he knew that a bottle of liquor would be the only way he could get Walter's attention. So he went up to Walter's house and rang the bell. Walter answered the door. What do you want, kid? Our friend the teenager handed the bottle of liquor to Walter, who immediately grabbed it. Can I get a lesson from you? Walter replied, sure, kid. Here's your lesson. Take your harmonica and go like this. There. There's your lesson. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was Chicago Blues Harp 1. There was also a Chicago Blues Harp 2 class, but Greg advised us to skip right over to 3, because 2 was just a repertoire class. So I did just that, I skipped over to Blues Harp 3, which Greg taught, and during this class I heard stories of Joe Felisco, who was, and as far as I know, still is, in charge of the Blues Harmonica program at the school. From these stories, I concluded that Joe must have been quite a fascist when it comes to playing harmonica. You must practice all the time because he wants you to learn the music. Bring a recorder to class so you can further reinforce yourself. Well, actually, the school always recommends bringing a recorder to class. It's important not just to play the notes, but also to play them right. And on and on, he sounded like a hard ass. So after I took a few rounds of Chicago Blues Harp 3 with Greg, I signed up for Joe's class and found that he was... (gasps) Well, not the dictator that I thought he would be. He was seriously a nice guy and very encouraging, very complimentary. But the man clearly knows what he's doing. Joe is actually a blues harp legend. He makes and sells custom modified harmonicas and apparently is one of maybe two people on the face of the earth who can play any song using any diatonic harmonica. Uh, Speaking of which, that's another thing you learn early on. Generally, there are two types of harmonicas you might encounter in your blues harp world the most common being a diatonic harmonica. And diatonic harps play one chord when you blow and a chord a fifth away when you draw. For example, I have here in my hand a B-flat diatonic harmonica, which means when I blow, it's going to play a B-flat chord. When I draw, it's going to be a fifth away. So a fifth from B-flat, you go B-flat is one, C is two, D is three, E is four, and then F is fifth, so when I draw, I should hear an F chord. Typically, the key of the song dictates which harmonica you're going to use. If the song is in E, then you're going to use an A harmonica. Why not an E harmonica? Well, because E harmonicas play E chords and B chords, but in a standard 12-bar blues tune, you're going to require mostly E and A. So an A harmonica is going to give you those A and E chords. Diatonic harmonicas have most of the notes in their respective scales, and to play the missing notes, that's when you have to bend the note. So if you're playing a B-flat harmonica but drawing it, which means you should get every note in the F scale, you can't. You're going to want to play a B-flat or a B in the F scale, so you have to use some bending techniques with your tongue and your embouchure, as they call it. And it comes out something like that. Then there are chromatic harmonicas, which have all of the notes of a scale, hence the term chromatic. Chromatics also have a button on the side. You push the button and the key goes up a half step. There's the button, and uh, notice that when I play this thing, it's going to go up half a step when I press the button. And uh, with the button on a chromatic harmonica, you can get some really interesting effects of... uh, Say, a suspense trill, like something like... And because of that button, instead of just two chords, a chromatic harmonica can actually give you four chords. It's usually the key of the harmonica when you blow, and then the minor the next whole step up when you draw. And of course, the button sharpens everything by a half step. For example, the chromatic harmonica that I have in my hand right now blows a C chord. And when I draw, it's going to give me a D minor. Well, actually, it might even be a a diminished, a B diminished, now that I think about it. But let's just call it a D minor. And if I hold the button down and I blow, it's going to be a C sharp major. 
and then a D sharp minor when I draw. And these harmonicas, the chromatics, that's usually what Stevie Wonder uses, and that's what John Lennon used on Love Me Do. Another thing about Joe Felisco's classes, he has a three-piece backup band consisting of a drummer, a bassist, and a guitarist. The guys in the band, Shoji Naito in particular, they're all expert harp players too. One day, Joe handed the lesson over to one of the guys in the band, I don't remember who it was, but it wasn't Shoji, but his lesson was how to play blues on a chromatic harmonica. The song he used for demonstration was B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone. He handed out a harmonica tablature and he pointed out how on the top of the page there were some directions that you could tell the band if you're going to play the song. Someone in class said, if you're playing blues harp and your band doesn't already know the thrill is gone, then you have a serious problem. But the reason for the backup band was that all of Joe's classes start with a play along with the band. He'll ask if anybody wants to play and those who do will take turns with the microphone, usually playing whatever piece of music they were assigned to learn for the class. You'd tell the band how to play. I never did learn all those special terms, but thankfully they always knew what I wanted them to play just on the title of the song. Then you'd play along, and Joe would take notes on a small sticky note and hand you his notes when you're done. Oh, and one thing I almost forgot to mention, Joe's classroom actually had a few rows of seats on risers for an audience. He actually welcomed people just to stop in and watch the goings-on, which was always cool. But enough about blues harp. I found myself mainly taking songwriting classes for a while because I'd always been interested in writing songs. During high school and college, I wrote some pretty lame ones, but I wanted to get an extra boost. First, I took a class called Songwriting Made Easy, taught by Shelley Miller, who's a definite fixture at the Old Town School. In addition to songwriting, she also teaches guitar and runs various ensembles, mostly female-centric. I remember two things in particular about the first day of this class. For one thing, one student proudly announced that she brought wine for everybody, to which I responded, Let's get drunk and write songs! What could possibly go wrong? It's not uncommon at the Old Town School for someone to share wine or beer with the rest of the class. The other thing I remember about the first day was Shelley assuring us that, uh, despite the name of the class, the songwriting would not be easy. And she wasn't kidding, either. She apologized and explained that she wasn't responsible for naming the course. And I don't think any of us ever had the guts to perform any stuff we wrote during that course. Then there was Songwriting 3, The Creative Process. Despite the number, you didn't have to take Songwriting 1 or Songwriting 2, but once again, I think it was the case that the instructor was not the one who actually named the course. Said instructor was Sue DeMell, who is absolutely a wonderful instructor. I took her class probably six or seven times because she had a way of getting people to really go deep down inside and get that creative muse that's dying to get out. Sue's exercises were incredibly useful. For one, she'll have people go home and choose three photographs completely at random and do a song that tells a story connecting those three pictures. Another one of her assignments was to literally take an existing song and write a new song based on those chords, but in reverse. That one gave me a song that I'm proud of that was, well, influenced by Ruthie the Beagle, and it will definitely be included in a future edition of Music for Schnooks. And the final assignment in Sue's class was always the same. Taking what you've learned from this course, write the best song you have in you. I must have done something right the first time, because when I first took Sue's course, every week she was pointing out to me how I kind of missed the point or missed a lot of opportunities. But the last night of class, as she puts it, the best song you have in you, Sue's mouth dropped, 
and she gave me a big hug afterwards. The songs that I wrote that I'm the most proud of came out of her classes. Now, I've been playing guitar since I was not quite 13 years old. I was self-taught. I learned from an instruction book I found along with my dad's acoustic guitar when I was home alone and bored one day. Something I found out years later was that being self-taught really does yourself an injustice. It was kind of driven home when I applied to be a guitar tutor one day, but I was turned down for the job on the spot because I didn't know things like pentatonic scales, still don't, and I couldn't explain how I would improvise given a certain key. The guy who interviewed me said, well, you definitely know how to play. I just heard you play, but you don't know how to teach. Do yourself a favor and take a lesson, and a whole new world will open up that you never knew existed. With that in mind, years later, I took Bob Goins' guitar fingerboard theory class at the Old Town School, and just the first day really opened my eyes. There is actual technique I never learned. For example, you want to assign each of your four non-thumb fingers. Uh, yes, the thumb is considered a finger. Look it up. Assign each of your non-thumb fingers four adjacent frets and keep your fingers on those frets unless you need to move your whole hand to a new position. Whoa. The idea was that when you play riffs and solos, it might sound like you're moving your fingers all over the place, but it looks like your hand isn't moving at all. What I learned truly was eye-opening, just as I was told when I was turned down for that guitar tutor position. However, despite all the cool stuff I learned in Bob's class, I'm still a mediocre player. I never learned how to finger-pick properly, either. Finger-picking is this kind of thing you do. You kind of play broken chords one note at a time, kind of alternating from high to low. It's also hard to do on a 12-string. I, when I play acoustic guitar, I usually reach for a 12-string because, I, I don't know, I just don't like playing acoustic six-string guitars because the sound just, I don't know, it's just not all there. A 12-string to me sounds much fuller than an unamplified six-string, so that's kind of why I gravitate toward the 12-string. But anyway, I took Mike O'Toole's fingerstyle class. He taught the Travis method, which is the standard in finger-picking. But, unfortunately, I still can't finger-pick worth a darn. Then again, it might be that I just didn't practice enough. His main goal in that class was to get us to be able to play all of Kansas's Dust in the Wind by the end of the course. I was one of only two students in that course, and neither one of us could get all the way through. Mike was totally understanding, because there are some really hard finger-picking patterns in there that require a lot of stretching that you really got to get your fingers used to. Mike told us that when Dust in the Wind first came out when he was a teenager, you didn't really have to play much of it at all to get the girl. He said that everybody felt the song was very deep and introspective, and just the fact that you would want to play a sensitive song was enough to make the girl go crazy for you. The last night of class was shortly before Christmas, so for the last meeting, he taught us a simpler version of finger-picking that would work for songs like Feliz Navidad, like, say, something like this. So much easier than trying to alternate your fingers, like something like this. And that's probably the best I ever finger-picked right there. <laughs> but anyway, the Old Town School also offers private lessons. I did take a few piano lessons, having taken lessons throughout college, but I just kind of lost interest, so I didn't re-up for more lessons. Having said that, I often do consider one-on-one -on -one lessons for drumming, because I really would love to learn how to play drums. 
The only problem, though, is I don't have my own drum kit, and I'm sure the other tenants in my building are thankful for that, so I'm not sure how exactly I would practice, but I can always look into it. And of course, there are the ensemble classes. You already heard me talk about Beatles Ensemble, but I've been involved in many other ensembles. Beach Boys, Monkeys, Neil Young, Psychedelic Garage, whatever else have you. I usually switch between bass and regular guitar, depending on the need. Except for the Beatles Ensemble, it does seem that there's, unfortunately, always a dire need for drummers. They don't really sign up for these courses for some reason. Coming up in the beginning of 2019, Lisa and I are going to be venturing into Queen Ensemble. I really, really hugely respect Queen, but I'm not really a fan. But man, you cannot beat those vocal harmonies, so we're really excited about it. What more can I say other than I love the Old Town School of Folk Music? It's a wonderful nonprofit. However, a lot of people are worried about the state of the school. Things have been changing and not for the better ever since new administration took over a few years ago. Course costs have increased steadily, causing enrollment to decrease along with it. It was announced recently that the school's building on Armitage Avenue that I mentioned earlier would be put up for sale to raise about $10 million in funds, which outraged a lot of Old Town School devotees because it would mean courses that start shortly after work wouldn't be accessible to people who work downtown, because there's no way they'd ever get to the Lincoln Square location on Lincoln Avenue in time, and some instructors would undoubtedly be losing their jobs. However, a grassroots campaign has resulted in management agreeing to hold off on listing the building for sale, at least until March 2019, and over the next few months they're going to examine ways to fix some problems, and hopefully that will preclude putting up the building for sale. Perhaps most disturbing was that it was recently announced that non-faculty staff would be laid off, and those in danger can apply for a severance package. Put all this together and it seems that there are some problems. Problems that those on the inside have been seeing ever since the new management took over. Of course, the powers that be deny that the announcement of selling the Armitage location is related to employee layoffs. But gee whiz, people aren't buying that line. Can't imagine why. So, yes, people are concerned about the fate of the Old Town School. Personally, I'm not worried at all. Is it possible the school could close in the near future? Sure. But having said that, the Old Town School of Folk Music has built up a strong community over the decades, and if God forbid the school ever does close, I don't think it'll be long until it or something similar is back in operation. If you live in or near Chicago and music is important to you, check out the Old Town School and sign up for a course or workshop, attend concerts or one of the many festivities you're likely to see going on, such as First Friday. Try not to be inspired, and try not to make lasting friends. Well, thank you for allowing me to get that seeming commercial for the Old Tone School of Folk Music out. Was it meant to advertise? I don't know, not really, just to give you a, a glimpse into what this schnook feels about music, really. It's a non-profit, so it can't really commercially advertise, I guess. I'm just someone who loves that place very, very much. I'm going to admit I feel partly embarrassed about this. This is an actual advertisement here. Autobiography of a Schnook now has a Red Bubble store. There will be a link to that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Schnook spelled S-C-H-N-O-O-K. 
Currently, you can get autobiography of a schnook notebooks, stickers, I think shirts even, tote bags, because I feel this podcast might have an NPR vibe, so why not have an autobiography of a schnook tote bag? But enough me trying to literally sell this podcast. You can reach out to me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com over email. And my Instagram and Twitter handles are both Schnook Podcast. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash, you guessed it, Schnook Podcast. I was originally planning for this to be the only episode of December 2018. However, I realized that's a lot of negativity in this episode, from my beagle passing the rainbow bridge to the possibility of losing the Old Town School, I want to end the year on a happy note. So I'm going to do another chapter of Autobiography of a Schnook. And given how close to Christmas it's going to be, you better believe there's going to be a lot of Christmas in it, a lot of happy Christmas stuff. So thank you all for listening. And I also thank Lisa for her undying support and encouragement. And I also thank Amy Goodchild for keeping me honest about my Orland Square recollections. So I'll talk to you all again in uh, a week or two, give or take. And always remember, the good goes around. And that's why I'm going to do another chapter for this month. Because I want some goodness out there and I want to try to help give it to you. All the best, my friends. (laughs) 